This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right. Well, Dr. Perlman, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to, yeah, first ask you the traditional opening question, which is how did you become interested in this project? Uh, so it's the typical academic answer. It uh, derived from my dissertation. Um, and originally, I was sort of interested in looking at how illness in Japan in the modern period, so around the early 20th century, was perceived. Um, I came across an amazing book by William Johnson got a name drop there, The Modern Epidemic About Tuberculosis. And um, I was completely fascinated and, and blown away. And I started wondering if there is this huge epidemic going on in Japan, how was it actually dealt with? How was it utilized? If the government is not really doing anything to, uh, to address it, was anyone else? And so it, it kind of got me down this rabbit hole, uh, looking at medical missionaries and evangelists and just this tiny little lacuna that uh, Dr. Johnston in his otherwise really comprehensive book um, didn't have a chance to, to cover. So I like to, to think of my work as uh, an analog or a corollary to his, but that might be giving me a lot of credit. Well, no, that's really that's really interesting. Of course, I'm you know I I saw some of that um, influence from Johnson's book. Obviously, um, it is sort of the canonical work. But I thought you know you open up a lot of interesting avenues in part by this question of you know how is this epidemic being used, right? And who is benefiting? Or you know that's a horrible way to say it, but who's benefiting from it, right? No, it's, it's, um, it's absolutely correct. You know. Yeah. So um, I want to get into that uh, in, in the individual chapters. But before we do that, uh, I want to look at some stuff from your introduction uh, and your conclusions. And of course, your, the, your conclusion uh, is qui bono, right? Uh, you yeah. know, who benefits, which, of course, is absolutely the question that we're asking here. Um, but I want to jump back to the to the beginning and ask you first. Uh, a couple of questions just to get us squared away here. So you open up by with this really fa fascinating line. This is the story in large measure of something that did not happen. Um, and as you say, the government chose basically not to treat TB as a public health crisis, which left it to the, the, the sort of civil society private sphere. Um, and then you ask that question about who benefits, right? Um, and I want to talk about this uh, you know, in more detail, but First, let's set the stage. Um, when does this all go down? Um, so, and oh. I'm sorry, let me just let me just throw out a bunch of questions for you and you can just go right ahead. Yeah. So first, when does this all go down? Um, and then when TB is relegated to the private sphere, um, you show in your book that it presents an opportunity for uh, Christian evangelical groups for what you call moral entrepreneurship. Um, and you also see that same kind of moral entrepreneurship mirrored uh, on the part of the Japanese government. Um, and you say, and you ask this really interesting question, should this moral enterprise be condemned as little more than a farce? 
And your answer, yes and no, is quite striking, right? And you also write that um, they, they're using, uh, the moral entrepreneurs are using people as political and soteriological currency um, so that the lives of the patients of tuberculosis are worth less than their souls. So can you, you know, set the scene for us and then square this sort of circle uh, on the tension between your criticism about you know, using uh, the, the, the TB patients and the sort of yes, no answer you give to that question? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so Jonathan is, is correct. Tuberculosis is a modern epidemic. Um, obviously, it's an endemic uh, disease. It has predated humans. It will probably outlast us. Um, but when we're looking at uh, the epidemic in Japan, we are looking at an epidemic that is concomitant with the processes of modernization along uh, Euro-American industrial lines. So urbanization, uh, the building of factories, the movement from the the countryside into cities, often into slums, into dormitories, um, to work in the factories. Uh, So it's it's a post-Meiji restoration disease. And for me personally, I'm looking in this book primarily between the 1880s and 1920s for two reasons. The first is because this modernization effort and the um, industrialization upon which modernization is really built by the Japanese government is taking place during this time and is seen to be quite successful during this period. But it's also when evangelists are first able to proselytize with really varying degrees of success in in the Japanese nation. Um, Christianity had been outlawed uh, until 1873. And so while there were certainly foreigners who identified as Christians and identified as evangelists, they were there under various other auspices. Um, but by the 1880s, both of these movements had really been taken by the Japanese government and by the evangelists in in full force, um, to say nothing of the fact that tuberculosis was pretty rampant. Um, and I think the interesting thing, particularly when looking at the Meiji government, even into the Taisho government that, that follows, is the fact that this is a, a government that's really, you know, on the, the forefront of medical research, on uh, bacteriology, on um, epidemiology, um, in terms of so many other epidemics and diseases, the government is really quite forceful in uh, its enacting of laws and uh, public health measures. But tuberculosis seems to just fall into the cracks. And that was one of the things that interested me, you know, why why is this happening? And then how do these Christian evangelists come in to fill in those gaps? Because they see this as an opportunity to be useful, not just to uh, the Japanese subjects, but particularly to their government. Um, Because it was a time when, you know, Christianity has, has only just become legalized. And you want to, as an evangelist, prove your mettle and your worth to 
your potential converts. Um, and ideally, if you can get converts at the upper echelons of society, at least according to these evangelists, that's so great because this is the kind of influence they wield. Um, so what I, I look at um, in the relationship between Christian evangelists and the Japanese government is this sort of moral entrepreneurship, um, wherein each party, whether it's the Japanese government or these foreign evangelical organizations, essentially paint themselves as like the moral moral party vis-a-vis the Japanese public when they relate to each other, that they are the ones who are caring for the populace the most, that they are working for the best interest of the Japanese people. Um, but it ends up getting really complex because it's not just a bifurcation. You also have a lot of these um, American Protestant non-denominational evangelical groups, so Salvation Army, the YMCA, sort of maneuvering with and against each other, again, trying to deal in conversion rates and, and presenting themselves as the true sort of Christians in Japan. The problem is when it comes down to looking at um, the victims of the tuberculosis epidemic, you have individuals who are essentially unable to have any sort of agency. Um, and, and to a certain extent, it makes sense. I mean, the, the, there wasn't suffrage. Japanese subjects were, were subjects. Certainly the uh, victims of tuberculosis that I talk about the most, women, wouldn't get suffrage until after, uh, until during the occupation of Japan. But um, with the Christian evangelists, there was this need to present the number of converts in a very positive light back to the boards at home, whether that's the American YMCA board in the States or the Salvation Army board, um, in order to garner uh, donations from back in the home country. So you have people who are working out of their own interests um, and sometimes what ends up happening is that the victims of tuberculosis are kind of left by the wayside or they're pawns in this game. And at best, sometimes they're, they're seen as a, a collective rather than a series of individuals, which makes them just sort of this block of, of currency, uh, rather than people, um, There are a couple issues with this that you, you you touched on in your question that, one, well, there wasn't a cure for tuberculosis at this time, so what could anyone do? And that's true. Um, and certainly a number of the medical missionaries and evangelists who went to Japan are doing so um, out of what they believe is, is a, a true mission and calling. And they do 
want to help. Um, similarly, a number of politicians are not unaware of the plight, um, but as politicians are often want to do, sometimes their political power is is maybe more important. Um, so those are those caveats aside. Um, what we see happening in certain cases of work among evangelists, particularly evangelists who do not feel beholden to boards back in the United States, um, is that they're sort of able to overcome this moral entrepreneurship or this moral maneuvering. Um, and they are able to offer care for the victims of tuberculosis even if that care doesn't offer any sort of panacea. It just offers some form of acceptance. And it might be paternalistic acceptance, but considering the environment and the sort of mythopia surrounding tuberculosis, not just in Japan, but worldwide, sometimes that was enough. Sometimes it was just enough to be considered for a short period as a human rather than as a victim of a disease or rather than as a soul that could be said to have converted, you know, and who could no longer speak because they were dead or they were um, not, not living anymore. Um, so that's, that's why I kind of answer that as a, a yes and no. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Cause I think, I think it's, it's one of the most, um, to me, sort of philosophically difficult questions that you're tackling um, in the book. Um, but to get into uh, one more sort of really practical question uh, before before we jump into the chapters, um, I wanted to ask you sort of more generally about tuberculosis, right? Because TB is a scourge in really all of the early um, industrializing countries. As you point out, there's, there's no real, there's no cure and treatments are basically palliative. Um, but you know, we, I, and as a historian of Japan myself, I mean, we talk about TB a lot, but I've always sort of wondered myself, I mean, was it worse in Japan? And and if so, how and, and why? Um, and, and I ask this in part because you're, I think, indirectly at least arguing that the government's decision not to tackle TB was a, a factor in prolonging and worsening the uh, epidemic. Um, but I guess I'm also sort of curious, you know, how and why it got so bad so quickly to begin with that, you know, that, that, that decision um, made it worse. Yeah. Um, so I think that, again, it's an epidemic that is common in sort of the industrialization process. Um, and so certainly, you know, England had its, fair share of rampant tuberculosis beginning in um, the 18th century with the Industrial Revolution, similarly uh, in America, in France, in Germany. Um, the difference is, and it, and it was, you know, horrible in all of these countries, but all of these experiences with the epidemic happened prior to the height of the Japanese epidemic. Um, in England, um, in the early 19th century, I believe like 
one in four deaths were due to tuberculosis. Um, but from 1913 to 1940, with you know pauses for world wars, uh, it the disease was on the decline, a significant decline, um, and was a notifiable disease to the government. And these sort of examples were ones that the Japanese government were certainly aware of, um, were, had the, the option of pursuing and following. Um, and they, members of, of the government certainly did toy with it, but it was seen as being ultimately against the interests of both the government and the nation. Um, so whether or not it was worse in Japan, it was certainly made worse by the fact that the government felt that it was a cost of modernization because it, um, was an epidemic that was primarily for, for quite some time limited to societies neglected, namely young, impoverished, often rural or from rural areas, female textile workers, um, the epidemic and its victims could be and, and often were written off as a sacrifice of the modernization process. Um, that Japan's modernization was built in the textile factories and the textile factories were populated by these female workers. And this was sort of a, a necessary cost of creating a modern nation. Um, the idea was, you know, if, if soldiers go to the front lines to give their lives for the nation, to serve the emperor, and women can't can't fulfill that role, well, here's what they can do. And, you know, there was, it was kind of easy to continue to dismiss this as long as it, it went on. The connections between the government and industry in Japan uh, were quite tight, to say the least. And um, this was profitable. And I mean, we've, we've unfortunately seen a very sad analog to it, you know, nowadays with, with our own current pandemic and uh, the economy that there are sacrifices that governments are willing to make and people die in the process. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you uh, both put that in very stark terms and the comparison with the army, I think is particularly interesting, right? Um, but also uh, the, the, the stark comparison with our own uh, current situation. I know it's, it's always um, difficult for historians of, uh, past tragedies to become suddenly relevant. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm sure this is not an entirely uh, pleasurable experience for yeah. you, but obviously um, there it's, it's one of the things I was thinking about um, as, you know, preparing for the interview. And I'm glad that you were able to touch on that. Um, so I want to jump into the chapters, right. And talk about uh, first, as you do uh, these uh, young women that we've been sort of touching on throughout. So chapter one, dead shriveled trees, 
Factory Girls in Meiji and Taisho, Japan, um, gives us an overview of the lives of these young women. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about the uh, conditions of their lives? Um, and also, I want you to, if you could, to um, circle back around a little bit to the introduction in explaining uh, your idea that the, you know, uh, something that you know, which is that public and elite perceptions of these factory girls uh, being sort of immoral um, factored into the government's decision to allow TB care to be privatized, because that's something we didn't get a chance to talk about in the introduction, in addition to everything else, right? Yeah. um, So I, I mentioned that, um, you know, modernization in Japan is built in the the textile fact or textiles factories, excuse me, um, the top three industries in Japan in 1926 were raw silk, cotton spinning, and cotton fabrics, um, and these had always been since really the the Tokugawa era, since before the modernization effort, the proto modernization had been considered the realm of of women um, by around the turn of the century, female workers were performing 60 to upwards of 90% of all textile work. So when we talk about um, both the textile factories, but also the modernization, the early efforts of modernization for Japan, we're really talking about these women and oftentimes girls. Um, And they are recruited specifically from rural villages, uh, often promised education or opportunities that they lack in their villages, often money to help support their families. Um, They're sold this idea that this is not just notable work, but work that will benefit them in addition to the nation, that this is going to help them, their families, and it certainly helps the nation. Um, what ends up happening is that they get to these factories where they're living in in dormitories, as is often the case with you know sort of modernize, modernizing efforts. Um, there are very little uh, legislation in terms of factory conditions. Um, The government passes uh, a factory law in 1911. They don't have to enact it for another five years. And even then it's pretty spotty. Um, So we have women and often children working 12 plus hour shifts, standing at looms, at machines. Um, They get Breaks divided up through the day, uh, 15 minutes in the morning, half an hour at lunch, another 15 minutes uh, later on. But these breaks, they have to remain standing. There are, there's nowhere to sit. Um, they work through the night. They um, are provided with meals, but obviously this is a capitalist enterprise. So we're looking at cost cutting measures. So the nutrition is quite poor. They work. 10 days in a row before they get a day off. Rarely are they allowed to leave the dormitory during the day off. Um, 
the dorms are packed with 23 to 45 women and girls in about a 15 by 24 square foot space. Um, there's no heat. They share bedding. They sort of have these rotating shifts so that if you have someone who is infirmed and they are leaving to go work on the factory floor, that's your bedding. Um, bathing occurs three to four days. Um, hundreds of women get 20 tubs of water. They aren't reheated in between. Um, the factory floor itself ends up being overheated. The dorms are freezing. None of this is particularly salubrious for these women. Um, but again, it's seen as being a cost of, of modernization. Um, there's a lot of women who are willing to take their places at the spindles, at the machines. Um, you know, even though a third of all Japanese manufacturing by 1930 are textile workers, and of those, you know, 90% are indeed female, that's still just 2.5% of the archipelago's total. So out of all of the remaining 97.5%, you can find other girls to replace ones who die at work or are get so infirm that they are sent back to their village. Um, I think one of my favorite is not the, the right word, but I think one of the most notable quotes was um, from a political economist, Dorothy J. Orchard in 1929, who noted when studying the, the textile mills in Japan that the individual worker is cheap. And she's right. They were literally worth less than the product they produced. So on the one hand, you have these women whose lives are, are being considered very flippantly, um, not only in Japan, but worldwide. And then add on to this, even among labor organizers, um, these sort of stigmas and stereotypes that the factories were uh, rampant um, you know, uh, nests of lesbianism or, or prostitution at that. These are just somehow lesser women because they are not seen as the good wife, wise mother sort of standard. These are just kind of your, your subaltern cast off. So of course we're going to tar them with whatever brush we can, um, in, in whatever way we can to, to kind of justify the fact that we are ignoring them and, and letting them die. Yeah. And I think um, if you uh, ever decide to do a, a talk on the subject, uh, not particularly salubrious would be a, a, a lovely title. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I was just, you know, I was thinking, um, uh, you know, in, in making this transition uh, between chapters one and chapter two, that, well, you've, you know, now you've introduced our protagonists. And then I realized that's not actually the case, right? Because uh, in, in, in the, the women are not the protagonists of anything in a way. I mean, they ought to be, but in fact, they're the, they're the subjects, they're 
I mean, in some ways, they're almost the antagonists of the whole story. And the real uh, protagonist number, the first one, comes along in chapter two, and that's TB itself. Um, but but then, you know, you also have um, the protagonists of the story who are the uh, scientists and governing elites and, of course, the uh, evangelicals who are, um, you know, come along later in your story. But I want to jump into chapter two. Uh, so in uh, this chapter, The Snow White Shawl, Tuberculosis in Meiji and Taisho, Japan, um, you sketch out the sort of modern histories of TB, uh, both in the West and in Japan. Um, and as you've already begun to do, you've noted some remarkable similarities. Um, and to the extent that we haven't, you know, to the degree that we haven't covered you know, everything, um, paint that picture for us here. Um, and in particular, uh, it, it'd be great if you could reference the tension between the TB patient as object of erotic desire, desire and moral reprobation. Uh, I guess maybe there isn't necessarily a tension depending <laughs> on your personal proclivities, but um, that's something that was particularly interesting. Yeah, I um, think that this is really one of the fascinating parts. And it's something that obviously um, in America and Europe, Susan Sontag talks a lot about. And um, in Japan, uh, Karatani Kojin uh, and uh, Fukuda Mahito. Um, but the, the strange thing is the weird mythopia that surrounds tuberculosis as a disease is strikingly similar uh, between the European conceptions and the Japanese conceptions, even before you have a real sort of dialogue between these, these locations, um, this sort of, uh, so tuberculosis has this, this weird, seemingly psychological, physiological connection, um, where we see, the idea that there is just a, a surfeiting of emotion and and desire and passion that can't be expressed outwardly in the correct way. And that kind of creates this weird predisposition towards uh, tuberculosis. And you, you see this in the stigmas about uh, mental illness. You see it in um, even stigmas about uh, genetics that um, people attribute to, to tuberculosis, but I mean, tuberculosis is, is sort of the most romantic of all of the epidemics, which is crazy. Um, but you know, in the 19th century, we have Keats and Chopin and Byron and all of this, this sort of people who ooze sentimentality, just eroticizing this disease. Um, and it, it becomes this weird feminine stereotype um, that this declination of, of life is a, a weird marker of sensuality in, in chasteness. Uh, physically, the tubercular beauty was seen as becoming more wan, becoming more pale, becoming more lithe as like her body was literally consuming itself. Um, and you get this sort of romantic notion of subverting concepts of, of beauty, the healthy beauty, the, you know, someone who could bear children. Um, 
but then as it's often the case, it kind of defines beauty. So you just need to look at, you know, La Traviata or La Boheme, that this is just like, oh God, there's so much passion that, yeah, I can sing an aria, but I, I can't freaking breathe. Um, so you have this strange kind of connection and you see it in Japan too, where you have these 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 heroines, um, Tokutomi Uroka's Hototogisu, uh, Namiko. She's just such a passionate young woman and she pines for her husband and it just eats her up inside because they can't be together and oh, tragedy. Um, until, you know, consumption literally consumes her. At the same time, especially among men, and again, you see it in, in Europe and America, and you see it in Japan. You have this sort of moral reprobate as, as bad boy. Um, and that happens more with men than with women. Um, that there is something about the victim that they are responsible for their disease. Not because they, you know, weren't social distancing or, you know, uh, being healthy in that way, but that there is this, some sort of mental illness at the root of it. Um, so you, you look at like Franz Kafka writing about his tuberculosis and, and saying essentially, well, I deserved it because why wouldn't I get it? This this seems obvious. In the same way, uh, Kasai Zenzo, um, a famous author of uh, many short shishosetsu, these these sort of eye novels, um, in one of them he 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 writes his his hero, who is basically him, writes that like, well, it's weird if I didn't get uh, tuberculosis. Like, if you can vent your f- fantasies, your passions you're not going to get it. But I have just turned in on myself and I just suffer. And the angst has manifested itself as tuberculosis. And all of this is, of course, insane. Um, there's nothing sexy, whether it's in the bad boy vein or the, the you know, erotic beauty of like coughing up bits of your lung. That's, it's a horrible, horrible way to die. Um, but because it is a disease that can be dormant for quite some time, because it is a disease that doesn't necessarily have a, how can I put this, a scatological aspect, like, unlike cholera, it's hard to make cholera seem really sexy or dysentery because it, you know, there's, there's a effluvia that is, is hard to, to hide, but for some reason, Humanity seems to think there's something really sexy about, you know, coughing up a little bit of blood, even though your breath is going to stink after that. Um, you know, it makes your lips red. And if you're already pale from fighting off this disease, there's seen as something very uh, enticing about that to a, a certain population. Um, but of course, the reality is is very different. It's, it's a horrific way to die. Yeah. Um, and I think th- this was the, 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 
eroticization of it has always struck me as, you know, particularly bizarre. Um, but the, the idea of sort of wasting away in consumption as a kind of memento mori, right? Like this idea that somehow the, the, the process of dying reminds you of the passions of life. I mean, that, 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 that I can kind of wrap my head around, but yes, I, I guess, um, the idea, yeah, the idea that coughing up a lung would be sexy just has never Right. It's not, not my personal taste. If you, um, if you get into the nitty gritty of it, it, it tends yeah. to lose its appeal. Just as, right. a, as a sort of idealized version, then yes. Yeah, oh. I think many things do. Yeah, um, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, on that note, let's move on to chapter three. <laughs> I think we may, we may be getting stuck in our own effluvia here, yeah, so no, let's move on. Um, so chapter three is, uh, it, it introduces uh, a scientist, um, Kitasato Shibasaburo, um, who is, is uh, sort of key to the uh, scientific battle being waged against the disease um, in Japan. Uh, and so here in this chapter, The Enemy of Mankind, The Struggle Against Tuberculosis, um, you look at Kitasato, who's both a government scientist and uh, an independent researcher, um, and his efforts both to battle the disease and his unsuccessful efforts to convince the government to do so. Um, so how did he approach TB and why was it not successful? Both as, I mean, scientifically that makes sense, but sort of uh, in terms of his ability to convince the government uh, to get on board. So Kitasato is probably one of my most interesting sort of touchstones. Um, he's a fascinating man in his own right. Um, particularly given the fight against tuberculosis. Um, he is really concurrent with the period that I'm looking at. He graduates from the medical school of Tokyo Imperial University, what we come University of Tokyo uh, in 1884. And the government um, sends him to Germany, most of uh, Japan's uh, scientific and, and particularly medical elite were sent to study in, in Germany. Um, and he works under the tutelage of Robert Koch, who is famous for isolating the uh, bacillus of, that causes tuberculosis. And the two become not just mentor and mentee, but really great friends. Um, and in the beginning, Kitasato, under the auspices of the Meiji government, has a number of very strong allies. Uh, Nagayo Sensai, um, who sort of sparks this sort of modern medicine within the Meiji era. Uh, Mori Ogai, who is not just an author, but also uh, a physician. Um, And so Kitasato is doing really great work with Robert Koch at his uh, laboratory, but also independent. Um, he's isolating the tetanus bacillus. He was working on anthrax. Uh, he ends up working on uh, the bubonic plague. Um, and he becomes one of, if not the sort of most famous of Japan's bacteriologists. Um, but even though he's seeing all of these successes, um, the government 
needs him to come back home and begin doing research in Japan and assisting the nation in that way. Um, and Kitasato is resistant. Uh, both he and Robert Koch are working on uh, tuberculin, which they hope is going to be a cure for tuberculosis. It isn't, as it turns out. Um, but in doing so, he manages to annoy a number of people in his government by sort of resisting the pull back to Japan. Uh, it looks like, and indeed he was, um, pursuing loyalty to Robert Koch over um, his senpai in in Japan. Um, when he finally can sort of avoid, or no longer avoid leaving uh, Germany, and he's brought back in 1892, um, the government sort of understands that he's going to join up um, in in uh, the lab at uh, Tokyo Imperial University, and he does not want to be essentially a government puppet. He feels that he is his own man. He feels that he ha- is entitled to uh, control his own fate, what he's researching, what he's doing, what he wants to study. Um, he's able to sort of continue to work independently. Um, his friends and backers launch a, a, a media campaign and the, they allow the Japanese diet to help him fund an independent laboratory. Um, again, for another two decades, he's kind of able to stave off the uh, impending grasp of, of the government. Um, but he's managed to make some very powerful enemies in politics. and he doesn't seem to care. Um, he's not a very politic individual. He's, he's quick to make, make enemies. Um, he thinks, you know, he, he should be able to pursue the science that he wants to pursue, uh, and not be beholden to, to anyone else. Um, and so even while he is highly regarded in Japan and particularly worldwide, um, the government sort of bristles at his independent streak. And um, the problem is that because he has managed to antagonize a number of elite uh, officials, both within the government and, and sort of in that coterie surrounding the government, he ends up losing the influence, the funding, and potentially the the attention of the government that tuberculosis, which you continue to work on, merited. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and so this is, I think, very interesting, um, both for me personally, I'll get to that in a second, but because um, Kitasato 
it provides such an interesting contrast to the uh, American evangelicals who are ultimately successful in um, you know, taking over the uh, sort of social, if not medical treatment um, of tuberculosis because he is so completely uh, politically unadept. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's, yeah, I mean, he's, uh, and, and I, I, the reason it was sort of personally interesting to me is I have, um, you know, passing familiarity with him as the mentor of a scientist that I had been working on recently, um, someone who had worked with uh, Kitasato at his um, Institute for the Study of Infectious Diseases. Um, and so he's tremendously influential as, you know, a, a scientist, uh, both within Japan um, and beyond, as you say. But ultimately, his, uh, I think you said, Br- bristly, maybe that was the word you used, uh, personality. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, his, his bristly personality is, um, you know, he's very much the sort of porcupine's dilemma. The closer the closer he gets to you, the more it hurts. Um, and, and it just, it, it ends up in this kind of failure to uh, be able to rally support for his cause. Um, and so he also, so of course, he, as I said, I mean, he presents this interesting contrast to the evangelicals, but also to uh, the person that you deal with in chapter four. Um, and he our first sort of politician. Uh, so this is uh, Okuma Shigenobu. Um, and in this chapter, justifying the liabilities which had been occurred, political strife over tuberculosis, um, you look at Okuma, who is, as you uh, as you say, a very compelling figure. Um, and you describe his guiding moral philosophy as utilitarian utilitarianism. Could I actually got through that without stumbling. Um, you also point out that he had a sort of creative, uh, flexible relationship with the truth, something that as a parent, I certainly understand. Um, (laughs) And uh, also that he was the perfect moral entrepreneur. So what does all that mean? um, And how does it shape his approach, which is obviously very different than Kitasato's uh, to TB? Um, What are the value judgments and equations that are running through his head? um, And how does that shape the larger responses of Japanese officialdom? Um, Just I'm particularly interested in your judgment, uh, and I'm quoting you here, that regardless of his true feelings about Christianity, Okuma was an unabashed devotee of medical missions. Uh, And that seems to me that's sort of the heart of what you're trying to get to here in this chapter. Yeah, so he really does offer a very fascinating, Okuma does, uh, counterpoint to uh, Kitasato because he's so hard to pin down for so many people, whereas Kitasato... does not have a poker face at all. Uh, It's very clear where his loyalties lie. Um, He does not want to play any sort of politicking game. Okuma is a politician par excellence. Um, So when I say utilitarian utilitarianism, I I have to add caveats um, in part because my my husband is a philosopher and he's like, what does that mean? Um, But he... Okuma is a politician who, like a, a, a number of individuals in the Genro, in the, the sort of main generation of, of Meiji politicians, didn't feel the need to justify their actions the way political parties uh, would have to later. There wasn't really checks on, on legislation. You could pursue politics um, without a hindrance of uh, legitimation, at least not to the subjects or to the populace. Um, Andrew Barche uh, talks about how the 
the Meiji mission of uh, Kokukyohe, the rich country, strong army, was pursued by by the government and and as concomitant with uh, modernization as both uh, the pursuit of a family state, this idea of Kazukukuka, where the, the emperor is the head of the family, the paterfamilias, but also with uh, Kanson Minpi, this, this um, exalt, um, the, the sort of politicians and, and deride the, uh, the populace. And Okuma is, is kind of part of that. He does what it is he feels is necessary to do without being beholden to constituents or political parties or, um, you know, even foreigners, but he doesn't necessarily stick with any one kind of party line or one raison d'etre. He's, he's very much interested in what will benefit, not, not just him, but what he feels about the, the, the Japanese nation. Um, and one of the reasons why I picked him was because not only is he this, he sort of paints himself as an outsider, um, but he's an outsider who becomes prime minister twice, once during the Meiji era for a short amount of time, be it, um, but also during the Taisho era for significantly longer. Um, and, and even when he's not being prime minister, you know, he served as minister of finance, minister of foreign affairs, minister of agriculture and commerce. Um, so he's been involved in the government despite kind of painting himself as an outsider. So what do I mean when I say he's an outsider? Well, um, like many of the early politicians slash all, um, in Meiji, he's a former samurai. Um, but unlike a number of them, he's not from the, uh, former provinces of, uh, Satsuma or Choshu. He's from Hizen, which already he's kind of outside of this clique, but it allows him to kind of float without having these associations from these locales. Um, and He's always able to serve various factions um, fairly well, not without, you know, pissing off people. Certainly, um, <laughs> there was an assassination attempt. So, you know, that that probably is a testament to the fact that he does piss off people. Um, but he was seen as being sort of the consummate statesman without any sort of group affiliation. He wasn't beholden to party, ideology, creed. He just wanted to be sort of accepted by specific individuals from whom he desired something, money, influence, power. And so he would tell them what they wanted to hear without, again, having to stick to any one party line. Um, and I think that that is quite useful for a moral entrepreneur because moral entrepreneurship is about flexibility. It's about constantly maneuvering. And Okuma was amazing at maneuvering. Um, he's not a Christian. Uh, early on, he's, he's very clear about his antipathy to the religion itself, but he's often noted as 
being appreciative of the work of Christians and to them appreciative of the ethos of Christianity. Um, so he can appear very friendly to foreign evangelists, to foreign journalists. Um, he's a really charismatic guy, unlike Kitasato. Um, but he's also really canny and very savvy. Um, so uh, an anecdote that I like to, to tell is um, in 1905, Hannah Riddell, who is um, a British evangelist who was working on um, trying to assist the victims of Hansen's disease in Japan or leprosy. Um, and she sends out a call for, for funding. Um, and Okuma is happy to receive this. He assures her that he supports her work wholeheartedly. Um, and so he gives her cherry and maple trees to line the grounds of her uh, sanatorium. And yeah, he's he's known for having a, a green thumb, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Ms. Riddell was not looking for an arboreal donation. You know, she asks again for money and then he kind of goes radio silent. Um, so he's, he's able to say, well, yes, of course I support this, this mission. I've, I've, you know, given something of myself, but he's doing this without actually putting anything on the line. Um, and I think that that is really indicative of, of how he, he works with, um, these foreign evangelical organizations. And a lot of them are really happy to hear it because they then can go back to, their American boards and say, well, we have the backing of the prime minister, even though all he's doing is paying lip service and maybe giving a tree. Yeah. Um, the, the Arbor day, uh, quality to his, uh, uh, commitment to the problem is, is really, it's fascinating because it, it, you, you have, uh, this, you know, as you say, lip service to support, but then what's actually happening is that the problem is really being passed off to someone else. So he's, as you say, sort of not risking anything exactly. um, in, in the pronouncement. And instead, it is uh, the American evangelical groups who end up doing the sort of yeoman's work. Um, and they, we start to get into that yeoman's work uh, and the uh, organizations in Chapter five, the Nazareth of the Orient, the particular work of the evangelists. Um, and so you identify this uh, balancing act between uh, what you call, quote, the organizational perquisites of moral enterprise, endorsing the state good and the evangelical good, promoting modernization and providing independent funding uh, for their works. So what do you mean by that and how does that play out? And then similarly, um, you show that American Christians had a difficult task in balancing the secular nation of modernity and civilization uh, embraced by Japanese elites, and then the religious nature of their own um, ontologies and practices. So if you could tell about us about that as well, that would be great. So I mentioned before that... Um... Christianity in, in Japan, uh, the, the ban on Christianity was repealed only in 1873, so only five years uh, into the Meiji Restoration, but still evangelists had to work not just in an environment where Christianity was suddenly permitted, but presumably where 
antipathy towards Christianity remained. Um, so not just among the populace, but also potentially among the, the, the Japanese nation. Um, so these evangelists who come in need to make sure that they are doing work that doesn't step on the government's toes, that doesn't annoy the government, that doesn't piss off the government, that doesn't sound at all uh, seditious or treasonous. Um, but they also had to then present their work as bearing fruit to the boards back in, in this case, America, or they would be not just deemed as, as failures, but they'd be pulled back home. Their livelihood would be shut down um, to say nothing about the sort of stain that they might feel morally that they had failed to, to gain uh, souls for Christ. So for these evangelists, you had to make sure that you were towing two party lines, that you were trying to gain converts, but doing it in a way that allowed for uh, Japanese nationhood, that supported the Japanese nation, that didn't undermine any of the teachings of the Japanese nation, um, including state Shinto. Um, but in order to get money to continue your work, because these missions were not self-supporting, certainly not at this point, um, you relied on donations abroad. And the best way to garnered donations was to present this appeal that you have gotten this many converts already and the work needs to continue. And in order for it to continue, you need more funds. Um, so this balancing act is extremely tough, particularly in, in the early days where you are trying to placate a foreign government in your new home, but also appeal for funds from Americans who don't really care about the sovereignty of the Japanese nation or, you know, what would step on political toes. They just want to see the bottom line of, of converts. And what we see for a lot of these uh, missionary encounters is the creation of um, what becomes known as the pseudo-Christian, which are individuals who um, believe, as uh, Motoda Saknoshin, who is the first Japanese Catholic bishop, says, who believe in ethical Christianity, but they don't know anything about spiritual Christianity. That Christianity seems to have a good ethos. There's a lot here that gels with um, a lot of Japanese beliefs. But if you want to get into the nitty gritty of Christ and heaven and salvation, that's a little bit beyond the pale. Um, so a lot of these evangelical groups end up sort of giving numbers of pseudo-Christians, individuals who will come to missionary uh, groups or, or mission missionaries themselves to learn English or to sort of interface with foreigners or um, partake in muscular Christianity, sports, and, and, and whatnot. Um, and so the pseudo-Christians enable a number of missionaries to present their work as the epitome of the moral enterprise, that 
the Japanese government can reconsider their hostility to potential cultural imperialism that an evangelical presence might uh, otherwise present, um, but also could be sort of massaged to appear as if converts were being garnered back to the the home board. Um, so this becomes this kind of bind that the the missionaries are um, drawn into. Um, and this kind of ties in with the idea of how do you present yourself as useful to a, a modernizing, cutting edge government while trying to preach something that is, you know, a truth beyond time, that that is an ancient truth and, and goes back, you know, millennia. Um, and so one of the ways that they did this that I sort of uh, mentioned earlier is that evangelists, rather than coming in full steam ahead, preaching the gospel, they sort of couch their work into uh, things that seem useful to the Japanese public and, and thus the, the government, linguistic training, uh, education, physical fitness, um, and then eventually into medical missions and medical work, all of which contribute to a modern populace assist the nation in its quest to modernize along these Euro-American colonial lines. Um, but it's notable that it takes a while to get the medical mission aspect of the work sort of to be accepted and, and to, to be, uh, to, to come to fruition. So um, Hepburn, who most, uh, students of, of Japanese sort of know offhand um, is Dr. James Curtis Hepburn. He's one of the very first Protestant medical missionaries to Japan. Um, he has a very busy dispensary. He becomes head of a Christian medical school in Japan, but he's not known for these things. Instead, he's known for the Romanization system of Japanese language. Um, so he's seen as being useful in that way. And, and the medical stuff, which is where he's really trained, comes later. Um, and we see the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 as a real turning point, not just for the medical missions, but for uh, Japan's modernizing efforts. Um, that this is the moment where Japan sort of presents itself to the world as like some sort of modern debutante. Um, but it's also the period where Japan's foreign evangelists are able to really prove their utility and their merit to Japan, not just in medical missionary work, but this is when we see this, this blossoming of, of ties. Yeah, um, and it's after that uh, Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 that um, you see uh, particularly the 
the uh, protagonists of chapters six and seven, the YMCA and the Salvation Army, uh, becoming uh, sort of core to the story of TB. Um, and so for the purposes of the uh, podcast, I want to kind of uh, smoosh these two chapters together okay. here um, and so that we can talk about them in contrast with each other, because that's really what you're doing in the book. Even though you're examining them separately, you're putting them um, into this very you know uh, clear comparison with each other. Um, and so if you could tell us uh, first a little bit about the organizations themselves um, and then about their different approaches to uh, medical missionary work and missionary work more generally, if that's appropriate, um, in Japan during the time uh, of the, the, the time period that we're talking about. So how did they frame their work? Um, and I guess what specifically did they do? And, and what does that all mean in the end uh, for tuberculosis? Uh, yeah, definitely. So um, I contrast them, but it's it's safe to say that they also contrasted themselves. Certainly the Salvation Army worked to contrast itself to the YMCA in Japan. Um, but let me start with uh, the latter. So the YMCA arrives first. Uh, officially, it arrives in Japan in 1889. Um, and it shows up as, as sort of the official um, incorporation of separate autochthonous groups um, that had been you know, pursuing Christian work individually. Um, the YMCA kind of swallows them up, led by the Americans to become part of this growing international YMCA organization. Um, and again, because they are there at the behest of, of the, the Japanese government, um, they need to make sure that they tow the party line, but they also are there um, getting funding from the American board. Um, and one thing they, they quickly realize, um, because they generally start off doing, you know, English lessons, um, is that the army is sort of the heart of uh, the Japanese nation. And the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95 uh, drives this home such that, you know, three years later, um, one of the, the lead, American leaders said, you know, if you capture the Japanese army for Christ, you capture the, the entirety of the, the Japanese nation. Um, and it was the Russo-Japanese War uh, 10 years later where they were able to see this come to fruition. Um, their medical missionary work, which is, this is their entrance into the, the medical missionary work, is not so much about uh, curatives or panaceas or even doing sort of the work on the front lines um, in, in a medical sense. It's really more about palliative care. Um, and it's, it's about, you know, helping convalescent soldiers sort of kill time while they are in, in hospital. Um, they, they come to, you know, speak with them, show them pictures, preach a little bit of gospel. Um, and so when these soldiers are able to return home, the YMCA follows them into the cities and they're following them as a form of, of social work, not so much about 
the social side of it, but about the socializing side. So they, they continue with lessons, they introduce sports, they build dormitories and gymnasiums, and the YMCA kind of becomes uh, affiliated with fun. Um, and this is fine for the government. The government, the Japanese government appreciates, you know, helping veterans. Certainly these are our heroes of the Japanese nation. Um, YMCA also after the uh, great Kanto earthquake does the same sort of thing. And this kind of gives them the air of legitimacy, but this medical missionary work is not particularly medical. And it certainly doesn't really focus on, on tuberculosis um, because it's, it's really aiming at the elite of the nation in, in the cities um, and sort of presenting themselves as, as useful to the elite through the work with, with these soldiers. Um, the Salvation Army comes in in uh, 1895 and immediately sets itself up to try and differentiate itself from the YMCA. Um, it's a difference you can see in nomenclature. The YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, is a fairly loosely organized fraternal alliance. The Salvation Army presents itself as an army. It, it, it uh, prides itself on rigid structure. It prides itself on discipline. Um, it also pursues a native policy, which allows for Japanese involvement. Um, at the start, the native policy is kind of a farce. Um, and that's, that's their term, native policy. Um, they show up, you know, trying to dress as Japanese individuals and live in Japanese houses, but they really just make fools of themselves. Um, but the, the flip side of the native policy is that they are open to a lot more Japanese involvement at the upper echelon of uh, leadership among the Salvation Army in Japan than the YMCA ever is. Um, in addition, they are very willing to sort of work within the confines of Japanese society to improve it, even if the improvements are, you know, sort of the manifestation that, that they believe. Um, in addition, they're more open to um, permitting women to uh, attain high levels of involvement rather than sort of auxiliary groups like the you know YWCA Salvation Army. Women can can lead um, and do at least certainly within the Booth family that that founds it, um, and they're seen as as champions of the the urban poor. When William Booth starts the Salvation Army in England. It was seen as as being uh, beholden to England and particularly London's uh, poor. Um, so, just right off the bat, we have this sort of split, um, and it's not actually just sort of empty words. Um, one of the Sort of most famous Salvation Army members and leaders was uh, a man named Yamamoto Gunpei, who um, really kind of invites the Salvation Army to Japan. Um, he is very much in touch with uh, 
Tokyo's impoverished. He writes um, a common people's gospel, which is meant to uh, be colloquial. It includes furigana, the syllabic transliteration of every kanji. Uh, he heads up the Salvation Army periodical in the same way. Um, so right from, from the get-go, we have these champions of the subaltern urban poor um, and they begin to work in, in labor reform, fire prevention, and then they kind of veer off into working on uh, prostitution and um, assisting um, women, particularly in, in prostitution, um, leave that life if they choose because it has been... Uh, it is in keeping with the, the the government laws that just aren't really publicized. Um, but again, the difference is that they work within sort of Japanese society to improve it. So they're sort of stepping on toes, but they're seen as being very full of conviction where the YMCA doesn't really piss anybody off, but it's not really doing anything. Um, so there's there's sort of a begrudging respect that the Salvation Army garners from the government. Uh, William Booth, the founder of the army, meets Emperor Meiji in 1907. Uh, Emperor Meiji, I think, recalls that that's one of his two most epiphanic meetings of any with any foreigner. I think the other one was Ulysses S. Grant. So take that for what it's worth. Um, but Booth says to the emperor that the Salvation Army should look into uh, a medical facility for indigent tuberculosis patients and donate to that end, um, which isn't to say that the emperor was unaware of, of the plight of the tubercular, um, but this sort of allows that foreign uh, push to, to come to fruition. So, um, the Salvation Army actually begins building a, a sanatorium. Uh, it's headed by a Japanese doctor, Dr. Uh, Matsuda Sanya. Um, Yamamura Gompei's wife assists in um, pursuing uh, the building materials with the, the imperial family. Um, it, it becomes... A, a an actual sanatorium. Uh, it's joined by a second. Um, the efforts of Dr. Matsuda and his assistant, uh, Dr. Iwasa Rin, a female doctor, um, really become one of the first true sanatorium in or sanatoria in in the country by the end of the Taisho era. Um, the Japanese government had sort of attempted to pursue some, uh, they were limited. They had passed legislation saying that they would, they were supposed to have nine, they had five, they weren't really functioning. Um, but the government is able to sort of utilize, uh, Dr. Masuda's and Dr. Iwasa's Salvation Army, uh, sanatoria for their own purposes, which is kind of the whole point of the moral enterprise, really. Um, so we have on the one hand, the YMCA making soldiers feel better 
we have, on the other hand, the Salvation Army, who is sort of working with the uh, more indigent. And, and I should mention most of the, the, the patients at their sanatoria were male, actually. Um, but this, this differentiation is, is one that I, I certainly follow through with, but it's also one that, especially the Salvation Army, was very keen to make uh, notable early on. Yeah, and that distinction uh, between different approaches uh, is also the thing that you really follow up on um, in your final uh, chapter of the body of the book, uh, chapter eight, uh, The Great Gulf Fixed, Rudolf Tuzler and William Voorhees. And so here you're looking at these two evangelists uh, with the very... uh, I guess, uh, a time-appropriate names of Rudolf Bolling Tusler and William Morel Voorhees. Um, Tusler, uh, you call him a pragmatist with a deft hand as a moral entrepreneur. Uh, Voorhees, who was a one-time TB patient himself, um, you describe as a savvy businessman. Um, other than this distinction um, and the fact that one is an awful speller, the other is an awful poet, um, who were these guys? Uh, and when and where did they work in Japan? How do they, uh, as you argue, uh, exemplify the fruition of evangelical moral entrepreneurial efforts? So because neither end up being beholden to larger organizations like the YMCA or the Salvation Army, they are granted greater freedom. They do not have to take into account these American boards in their sort of moral maneuvering and, and moral entrepreneurship. And so that, that certainly helps. Um, but I don't want to take away from the accomplishments uh, of, of, of each man individually, um, because even beyond that, I think how they went about pursuing medical missionary work and doing so successfully in Japan is, is quite notable. Um, Twistler is um, ostensibly he worked under the kind of broad auspices of the Episcopal Church or the Evangelical Church of America, but he really pursued resources of other missions, relations with uh, Japanese physicians um, without any sort of Christian affiliation. Um, It took him a while to kind of grant them uh, equality, but... um, apart from sort of being dedicated to Christ and, and certainly he was a, a you know an evangelist he was dedicated to his hospital or the hospital that he becomes sort of synonymous with which is uh, St Luke's Hospital um, in Tokyo um, St Luke's actually predates him it originally was Skiji Hospital um, and it was founded in 1874. It had really quite auspicious beginnings, but it ends up falling into kind of disrepute. It's dismissed um, as a medical mission, as a failure until uh, Twistler shows up. Um, and when within a year, less than a year, six months uh, of sort of opening or reopening as St. Luke's uh, in 1901. He had um, over 300 patients. He was filling 1,500 prescriptions at the uh, affiliated dispensary. Um, And 
part of this was because he placed the, the medical aspect of his missionary work in the, the foreground. Um, obviously, the hospital depended on foreign funds, um, not just from America, but also from foreign dignitaries and missionaries in Japan. And so he would serve these individuals, the foreign community in Tokyo, and provide them medical care and uh, prescriptions, and then sort of funnel the, uh, the funds back into the hospital to allow him to, to provide care for individuals who had kind of fallen through the cracks of previous medical missionary work in Japan. So the domestic uh, urban poor. Um, and he was able to do this really quickly and, and really quite successfully. Um, he wasn't focused on tuberculosis solely. Um, it really was about just providing medical care to these individuals, whatever they needed. Um, but it caught the attention of the government fairly quickly, um, including under Okuma, so that they were very open to working with Twaisler. Um, and in doing so, it, it assisted Japan's foreign policy as well, because they could say that, you know, they were working uh, in concert with this, this American doctor. Um, but at the end of the day, he, you know, was able to take funds from a foreign source and use them to assist his, his constituents um, and to do so utilizing the service of uh, amazing Japanese professionals, uh, Araki Io, who uh, headed up the, the nursing department, her husband, uh, Dr. Kubo. Um, and so Twistler recognized that it was important to, to serve, obviously, the Japanese, but to do so utilizing uh, Japanese expertise. Um, Boris kind of took that even further in spite of his god-awful poetry. Um, he was younger. He graduated uh, college in 1904. He had a bright future ahead of him, uh, but he wanted to go to Japan. Um, he was sent originally under the auspices of the YMCA to uh, Hachiman uh, on the shores of Lake Biwa um, out in the countryside to become a high school English teacher. Uh, he managed to piss off some of the town's residents by preaching a little bit too vociferously. So he's sort of chased out of that job after three years. Um, but he doesn't leave. He stays there and tries to figure out other inroads to supporting himself such that he can continue, uh, preaching because he is getting, you know, converts or at least pseudo Christians. Um, and what he sort of comes up with is, uh, architecture. He's kind of an architectural dilettante. Um, and so he, uh, starts an architectural firm with, uh, a friend and also, uh, a Japanese former student. Um, 
And this firm has a solid basis in evangelical work. It originally begins to build mission offices and churches, and then it branches out into secular buildings, not just in town and the surrounding areas, but across the nation. Um, with the funding from this, he continues to branch out into business. He begins the Omi Sales Company Limited, uh, at a branch of his Omi Mission and Omi Brotherhood. Um, not just for building materials, but he ends up getting the rights, uh, the sole Japanese rights to uh, mentholatum, which is kind of like a Vicks vapor rub and is still manufactured by the company um, down in Omihachiman to this day. Uh, if you want a tour of the factory, it's fascinating. Um, and he's able to, with this monopoly on, on mentholatum and all the, the money coming in from the, the architectural firm, he's able to funnel this back into evangelical work. Um, and unlike any of the other sort of evangelists that we meet previously in the book, he recognizes the importance of evangelism in a rural setting rather than in Tokyo or Osaka or any of the, the major cities. Um, like Twistler, he knows that these works should be for Japanese villagers, conducted by Japanese villagers, but this emphasis on rural is new. Um, with this surfeiting of money, he um, turns his attention around 1905 to tuberculosis. He's not a doctor. Uh, he's not even a medical dilettante the way he was with, with architecture. But um, when his friend and, and a convert, uh, Endo Kandio, passes from tuberculosis, he sort of takes it upon himself to build uh, a sanatorium, uh, which he does in three years, the Omi Sanatorium. Um, it's staffed completely by Japanese professionals, all members of, of uh, Voriz's mission. Um, and because it's focusing on tuberculosis in the rural communities, it doesn't overlap with any previous foreign uh, evangelical organizations. Um, and it's really seen as quite successful. Um, the mission branches, departments, um, by 1925 would number, I think, 17. Only the architectural department had a larger staff than the, the sanatorium. It was conducted on a, a nonprofit basis. Patients pay just the actual cost of their living. Um, again, there was no panacea. This is completely palliative care, but it allowed them to quarantine. It allowed them to convalesce in a place that was seen as as loving and accepting, or at least as loving and accepting as, as possible. Um, so without this sort of medical panacea, Voris sees a, a, a spiritual panacea for, uh, for tuberculosis. Yeah, and I think Voris is a really good um, place, both for the book and for uh, our interview to wrap up in the sense that he's, um, you know, 
he's a really interesting figure because, as you say, he sort of moves from uh, urban Japan to rural, um, but also in that sense and sort of more broadly with, he becomes a part of the sort of fabric of society in terms of where the funding has come from, coming from, right? Uh, Who he's responsible to, you know, rather than being uh, dependent upon and responsible to uh, the the missions back home, the boards back home. Um, And he's working with, uh, local staff, and he's you know using the profits from his businesses in Japan. Um, he's sort of you know he's becoming part of Japanese society, and that sort of um, is, is a real interesting contrast to sort of where we start out with uh, with you know for example the the YMCA um, yeah. and the uh, Salvation Army uh, in the end of the nineteenth century. Um, so, but before before I let you go, uh, we do have, uh, in addition to the traditional first question, we all have the, uh, also have the traditional last question, um, which is, what are you up to now, now that your book is out? Uh, what are you researching? Um, so I have a couple of uh, articles in the works that I've kind of been toying with for a while. Um, one is looking at um, an individual who uh, was affiliated with the YMCA in Japan uh, in the post-war, Dean Leeper, who uh, perished in uh, a typhoon in uh, 1954, and sort of the relationship between the YMCA and uh, in in Japan and the efforts to sort of support his his family in the wake of his his tragic death. Um, I also sort of have just my own kind of weird projects off on uh, in left field uh, that have nothing to do with Christians in Japan. Um, so I just wrote uh, an article or just published an article on uh, Baby-san, who was uh, the protagonist of a series of uh, cartoons from an American GI during the occupation, um, which present a very let's say, interesting lens into how American GIs perceived uh, both Japan and uh, Japanese women in the post-war. Um, and I really, really love to contrast that with um, the 1990s, early 2000s cartoon Charisma Man. Um, but uh, that's still in Kuwait. So you heard okay. it here first. You'll be, you'll be happy to know. I, I, I've actually already read your Baby Son article and enjoyed oh. it. But I will be looking forward to uh, Charisma Man, you say? Yes. Oh, uh, yes. Well, with a title like that. Um, I know. How could it possibly be awful? Oh, God. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to have you back on the podcast uh, when you write the definitive volume on Baby Son versus Charisma Son. Uh, Charisma Man, excuse me. Uh, in the future. Uh, But until then, uh, thank you so much for being generous with your time today and joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was wonderful.